Hey, welcome to Access. John here. If you haven't already, be sure to download the free FBC Rungi Church app on iTunes or Google Play for sermons, announcements, and important updates regarding the church. Do you know how the Bible is unlike any other book in the world? This is the second part of a two-part series called What is the Bible? where I'm going to be addressing some of the common arguments that people have about the validity of Scripture. This message is entitled, What is the Bible? Part 2. Would you turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52? Uh, we're gonna, this is where we're going to be spending the most time today is Isaiah chapter 52. We're going to start with verse 13, and then we're going to go all the way through chapter 53. Um, and I know that sounds like a lot, but trust me, it will go very quickly. What we're going to do today is um, I'm gonna, we're actually going to pick up where we left off last week. This is the second part in a two-part series called What is the Bible? And if you haven't heard or listened to, uh, if you weren't here last week, if you haven't listened to that message, then what I would strongly encourage you to do is go back and listen to that. Um, and uh, that really just sets the, the groundwork for what we're going to be talking about today. Um, last week, if I had to sum it up uh, in one sentence, it would be we studied about how the Bible truly is God's Word and that it is all about Jesus Christ, the Old and the New Testament. So uh, go back and study that. It, it, it really is some, some fundamental truths about God's Word, how you can trust that it is God's authoritative Word. Um, today we're just going to pick up right where we left off last week. And what I want to do is I want to talk about some arguments that Bible critics commonly make about the Bible. And uh, I, I just want to try to give an answer to that uh, to, to help you along. If you're struggling knowing why God's the Bible is God's Word, then I want you to leave today with full assurance that you can believe that God's that the Bible is God's Word. Um, so um, what I'd like to just ask you as we begin here is, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that the Bible is God's book? Because there are a lot of other religions out there in the world with ancient scriptures, and they claim to have the same thing. They claim to have God's book. Um, and so why, why is the Bible so important, and, and you know, how can we trust that, that it is God's authoritative word? Um, well, as I said last week, if, if you get anything out of this series, I want you to know that the Bible is God's book. And um, it is it's just as important to know that as it is to be able to explain why. I want you to be able to explain why you believe that it is God's book, not just believe that it's God's book. Um, so today I want to focus on the process in which the Bible was transcribed and uh, how it has been preserved through history. And I also want to spend some time just talking about specific reasons why we know it is 100% true. So, um, many Bible critics claim, let's just start with the first one, they claim that uh, the Bible can't be trusted as 100% true because uh, it wasn't recorded uh, like a live event, it was recorded decades later, um, and, it, and it really just kind of followed the pattern of a, a game of telephone. It followed the same process of a game of telephone. Uh, so basically, you know, uh, one person would say one thing about Jesus, and then that person would go and share that thing with Jesus that they heard, and, and, and all of a sudden, you know, Jesus went from being a good moral teacher to being, you know, exalted to the the Son of God, and so uh, you can't trust what Scripture says because it just followed the same format as a game of telephone. Well, um, as we begin, I just want to uh, address, I want to begin by addressing that point, and then we'll move on to the next one. Essentially, what we need to know about Scripture 
all of the New Testament and a lot of the Old Testament is that it was recorded by eyewitnesses. It was written down by eyewitnesses, and we're going to get more specific as to who those eyewitnesses were in just a few minutes. But the entire New Testament, especially the Gospels, is recorded off of eyewitness testimonies. Um, so far, uh, so, so, so for someone to say that the Gospel, um, it followed the same pattern as a giant game of, of telephone, just shows how ignorant they are as to how Scripture was recorded. Um, and the Gospels were either written by an eyewitness, or someone who is directly connected to an eyewitness. Um, so, for example, uh, Matthew or Levi, he was a disciple of Christ. He knew Jesus Christ. And so he recorded the things that he saw and the things that he experienced. Um, the same could be said about John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was a direct disciple of Jesus Christ. And so he saw with his own eyes and, 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 and he, he heard you know, the things that Jesus taught, and so he was the one that recorded the events of Jesus' life. Um, the, the, you know, John Mark, or Mark, or John Mark was a uh, protege of, of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. Remember Barnabas, Barnabas and Paul get into a fight later on, uh, and you know, they, they split up. Well, it was over John Mark, who wrote the book of Mark, who wrote the first gospel. And so uh, it all worked out, but it was written by somebody who was directly connected to somebody who knew Christ. Um, then, of course, you had Luke. Now, Luke was a doctor. He was a physician. Um, and he wrote the two longest books in the New Testament. He wrote the book of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. And Luke explains that he was on a mission to uncover what really happened with Jesus. And so, um, and he does this for a man named Theophilus. Now, uh, in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, it's uh, 1 through 4, it says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us uh, from who were the first eyewitnesses, the servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So, uh, essentially, Luke, who wrote the book of Luke, or the letter of Luke, uh, he did so from an eyewitness testimony perspective. So basically what he did is he went around and he interviewed people and he got the whole story. He, he talked to anybody that would talk to him about Jesus. He talked to Jesus' mother. He talked to Jesus' disciples. He talked to uh, Jesus' siblings. He talked to people who witnessed miracles firsthand. People who, who were healed themselves. He talked about, uh, you know, he talked to anybody, anybody that would talk to him about Jesus. And he says, listen, this is the consistent story that I'm getting and I just wanted you to know with certainty the things that you're hearing are 100% true. So um, there are actually two other books that are written in the New Testament, James and Jude. Well, who were they? They are Jesus' brothers, uh, Jesus' little brothers. Now, I, I think this is an incredible point um, that, that you know everybody needs to understand and everybody needs to know. If you want to get the truth about a person, if you want to you want to know who they really are, then ask their younger siblings. Ask your little brothers, because, you know, their little brothers will tell you the truth. Was he the son of God? Did he never sin? Like, son of God? Well, you know, he's, he, he's, a, he's a nice guy, but, you know, the only thing he was really great at was giving wedgies or, you know, inflicting bodily harm. That, that's what a, a younger sibling will tell you. In fact, as you look in the earlier part of the Gospels, what you see is, is that Jesus' siblings were embarrassed by the claims that he was making, like, 
he grew up. I got to see him grow up, and here he's saying he's the Son of God, he's the Messiah. Not that he lived as, you know, he did sin and they changed their story later on, but they couldn't get on board that Jesus was the Messiah until something, something happened. And truthfully, I don't have a better explanation as to what that is except for the resurrection. That would be the only thing in my mind that can, could convince your little brothers that you truly are the Son of God. Yeah, you do incredible things. Yeah, you do miracles. But Son of God's a little bit of a stretch. Well, whenever he rose from the dead, see, that makes perfect sense how not only they could get on board with what he was saying and what he was doing, but that they could become advocates that he is the Son of God, that he lived a completely sinless life. If your little brother's can accept that, then I think anybody can accept that. Honestly, I mean, that that's the hard part, is convincing your own family. Jesus said in, only on his own hometown is a prophet without honor. So it's hard to convince people at home that you're sinless and that you're the Son of God because they know you better than everybody else. They're closer. They're emotionally tied to that. So James and Jude wrote about Jesus afterwards because they knew him, because they got to experience the things that he did. They got to see him. Now, um, the New Testament, like I said, is based off of eyewitness testimony. Um, when somebody gets murdered, who do the police want to talk to? Eyewitnesses, people who saw what happened. They don't go and talk to a professor uh, that you know lives in a different continent who teaches a class on all of the aspects of, of solving a murder investigation. No, um, they've already saw, they've already studied how to solve a murder investigation, but they don't talk to those people because. They weren't there. They don't talk to the professor because he wasn't there. They want the eyewitness accounts. And a lot of people, a lot of people reject Scripture because they hear somebody tell them all the reasons why it couldn't happen, and they weren't even there. So wouldn't it make sense that the people who were eyewitnesses to what happened had a little bit more weight than the people who weren't even there? The validity of Scripture is based off of eyewitness testimonies. People who were there, people who experienced the miracles, people who heard personally the teachings of Jesus Christ. The Gospels, you know, they said the Gospels weren't written until decades after Jesus was crucified. Um, you, you know, that, 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 that has to, you know, that has to mean that, that it just grew over time. Well, they're not taking into account that the people who wrote these things, who wrote the Gospels, who wrote the New Testament, that they were the disciples of Jesus Christ. They were still alive. It wasn't like they passed this message on to somebody else and, you know, well, I heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody. You know, the, 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 the cousin twice removed of Jesus, like I heard that this happened. No, they were talking, like the, the scriptures, the, the New Testament is written by people who were actually there, were written by the disciples of Christ and people who interviewed people who were actually there. It's not an opportunity for the game of telephone to happen. That's what that means. That this actually happened and that you get it from an eyewitness account. Another thing that um, Bible critics like to use, another argument that they like to make, is that it must have been tampered with. You know, Scripture can't be legitimate because there was a time period, there's a time frame there, that, uh, that basically, you know, we don't know what could have happened, so it must have been tampered with. Well, if people who make this argument, my question for you, if, you know, if you're the person, is um, when? When could it have been tampered with? Now, um, 
one of the arguments they like to make is that we have a copy of a copy of a copy that was, uh, you know, basically just fragments of the book of John. So how do we know that what was written wasn't changed before then? Uh, this copy that they're referring to is known as Papyrus Number 66, um, and it is, is dated back to uh, the early... Um, 300, so basically the 4th century, the early 4th century. Um, so basically what they say is, is that that's, that's like 270 years after Jesus supposedly resurrected from the dead. And so how do we know that what John wrote in the book of John is actually what we see in these fragments? Because that's a long time. That's 270 years. Well, um, and basically, you know, it's just fragments anyway. So how do we know that, you know, how should we take the Bible as legitimate? Well, it's easier to explain what isn't in that fragment of, of John than what is. So, for example, you know, they make it sound like, oh, you only have this one little piece of paper that says, Jesus said he, and it doesn't say anything else, and he comes back around to, and then they went to town. Like, like that's not exactly what happened. So, for example, what is missing is about 40 verses from the entire book of John. So from the book of John, from those fragments, what we can see is, is that uh, you get all of chapter 1 through chapter 6, almost to the end of chapter 6. So what you can see is, is that Jesus is the Word, and he, is, he was with God in the beginning, and He is God. We can see that He was born from a virgin. We can see that He fed 5,000 people. We can see that He walked on water. We can see that He healed the sick. We can see that, that He raised the dead. That he, he claimed to be the Son of God. That He was crucified. That He died. And that He was resurrected resurrected from the dead. So that's what we can see from that little fragment that they're referring to. Uh, and that, that we can know that what was written in 300 AD, or three, early 300s AD, is actually the same thing that we hold as God's Word. So we're reading the same things that was written back then. Well, didn't that leave 200, roughly 200 and, and some odd years, 260 years that the New Testament could have been tampered with? Well, anybody that would make that claim and support that argument clearly doesn't know church history because before the first 280 years after Jesus was resurrected, there was a heavy, heavy persecution going on um, on the earth that basically Christians were hunted down and killed uh, because of what they claimed about Jesus Christ, because of what they believed. And, and wouldn't the easiest way to destroy, to destroy Christians be not to change and alter Scripture and leave them alone? Wouldn't it be to hunt down every single Christian and burn every single thing that is written about Jesus Christ? Wouldn't that make sense? So, for example, in 302, in 302 to 303 AD, somewhere in there, um, uh, Emperor Diocletian launched the final crusade against Christianity. And, it, and it's heavy persecution, but it was the last one. Um, and what he did is he killed Christians, hunted them down, killed every Christian he could find, and then he burned every single piece of literature that he could find that had anything to do with Christians. He didn't alter it. He, he burned it. He destroyed it. And he had, it, he had the Romans destroy it. So, as a Christian, going through this time of persecution, through this stage of persecution, would it make much sense to change and alter Scripture instead of preserving what you have, not letting anybody have it, because to alter it would be the equivalent of changing it and destroying it, or to change it would be the equivalent of destroying it. Wouldn't that make sense that they would do their very, very best to preserve what they had and, and hide what they had from everyone that wanted to destroy it?
not not change it or not alter it. So when did they have time to alter God's word? Because at 313 A.D., we know that 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 um, uh, Constantine became uh, became supposedly became a Christian, and uh, and and the the Edict of Milan in 313 A.D. said. You know, that, that they were in Christian persecution. So when did they have time to tamper with it? It couldn't have been tampered with. That doesn't make much sense. The, uh, the argument to tamper, that the, the, they tampered with Scripture, it isn't a valid argument because there just wasn't time in history to tamper with it. Another argument that they like to make is that um, you know, the best you can do is produce a copy of a copy. Well, so what? So what if all we can do is produce a copy of a copy? That's way, the way that literature was preserved. So uh, papyrus and lambskin, they're subject to, to decay. Uh, they're subject to entropy. Things break down over time. And so what they would do is they would take one copy and they would copy it to a new piece of parchment that would last several years. And they would copy that and it would last for several years. This is the way that all of literature was preserved. Why? Because they didn't have a hard drive. They didn't have a computer that they keep it on there and just bring it up whenever they wanted. They didn't have ways like to, 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 to gloss over something and make it last forever. They didn't have, um, you know, they didn't have ways to laminate. So it doesn't make much sense that people say, well, all you have is a copy of a copy. So what? That's the way it was done. And in fact, if you really want to get down to it, sure, it's a copy of the original, but so is anything written by Shakespeare, anything written by Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, anything written by philosophers. Ancient literature was copied over and over and over again to preserve it because old things decay and old things tear down. You know, we say, well, the oldest copy that you have was written somewhere between two to three hundred years of the original. Well, oh yeah, well, is that is that a fact? Well, you can't produce anything written by Aristotle, Socrates, Shakespeare, Plato. You can't produce anything that was written by ancient historians within, that comes within a thousand years of the original. We're 300, but you're a thousand years. So you can't produce anything, anything that even matches the validity of how well Scripture was preserved. So don't tell me that, oh, you have a copy of a copy of a copy. Because the Bible has been preserved better than any other piece of literature, any other book in the entire world because of the claims that it makes and because it is God's book. The number of manuscripts that the New Testament has alone is astounding. It is unparalleled to any other piece of literature in the world. So, for example, the thing that comes in second is Homer's Iliad. And it was, um, it was written and, 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 and it has 643 actually copies of Homer's Iliad. So it comes in second at 643 different transcripts or, or copies. Well, the, the Bible, the New Testament, has over 26,000 different manuscripts that are written in several different languages, and they were collected from Africa, Europe, and Asia, all over, all over that continent. That, that They spread out and they came back, and they have one to, less than 1% variance than the original. People go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Did you just say that it was different from the original? Yes, by less than 1%. Whoa, isn't that a big deal? Shouldn't we be paying attention that it was different from the original? It was less than 1%. And if you think about how many different copies there were of the New Testament, 26,000 copies and only a few of them had less than 1% variance, 
That is incredible. That is unheard of. That is unparalleled to any other piece of literature. Well, it still has 1%, you know, less than 1% variance. It still says some things that are different. It, listen, it says absolutely nothing that is different as far as doc, doctrine goes. It has ev nothing, nothing different as, as to what Jesus said, how he lived his life, what he commanded, that he rose from the dead, that he performed miracles, that he walked on water, that he turned water into wine, that he was born of a virgin. It has nothing to do in differences with that. The less than 1% variance of Scripture is spelling errors. It's things like words being, uh, you know, just mi there's word missing here. There's supposed to be a word here. It's words in the wrong order. So, for example, instead of Jesus Christ, it says Christ Jesus. That's the kind of variance that we're talking about. So, Scripture the fact that it has less than one percent degree of variance from the original, for from you know the copies that we can see, the major copies that come in and bring in that that there's only less than one one percent of a degree of variance, then then that's that's incredible. The only way, and, and it's really cool understanding the, the way that, that the scripture was preserved and the way that it was transcribed, the reason why it's less than 1% degree of variance is because of the way that it was written down, the way that it was copied. So basically, um, in, in the early, early parts of, of history, what we know is that there were orators that would get up and they would read and they would have transcribers recording what they said very, very, very carefully. Because after all, they considered this to be God's word. We also know that as it started to be written in Latin, that they would only be allowed to write one word, then they would get down and wash their hands. Then they would come back and write another word, and they would get down and wash their hands. So you know they would be very, very careful because it would take them months, if not years, to write just one book of the Bible. And if any degree of variance was found, any degree, if a word was misspelled, if it was out of place, if it was backwards, whatever, if any degree of variance was found, down, the whole book, the whole copy was destroyed. So you know that they would take their time and be very, very careful because I don't want an entire year's worth of work going down the drain and for nothing. So they would be very, very careful. Now, did we catch everything all over the world, all over Africa, all over Europe, all over Asia? We have some copies, some copies with less than one degree of variance. Now I'm going to tell you something, that is incredible. Because no other book, no other ancient document, nothing else even comes close to comparing to how carefully scripture, scripture was preserved. So yeah, we have a copy of a copy. So what? Our copies are better than you could possibly imagine any other piece of literature being. So the Bible is the most carefully preserved book in all of human history. So why critics question it? You know, they, they, they don't question Aristotle, they don't question whether you know that's really what Plato wrote or what Shakespeare wrote. No, they don't question that. Why? It has less evidence that that's actually what was written, so why don't they question that? Why do they question the Bible? Well, it's just a good old-fashioned case of not liking what it says, so you're trying to discredit it. Because the Bible is the most well-preserved document in all of history. Scripturally, is heavily, scripture is heavily criticized because people don't like what it says. Another thing that Bible critics like to say is that, um, you know, men in a room somewhere selected the books that they like. So basically, they say, you know, how do we know that some men in a back room didn't just pick all the books that they want and throw out all the books that they didn't? You know, weren't there other books that were written about Jesus in the New Testament canon? Well, the New Testament canon was officially closed uh, in a letter from uh, Athenius, and so uh, basically 
Um, he was the Bishop of Alexandria, and this was done in 367 A.D., and it was later agreed on in the Council of Rome in 382 A.D. So they basically, he sent a letter saying, hey, it's closed, and they had to meet together for several years, and they said, okay, yeah, fine. That, that's, we, we all can agree that the canon was closed. Now, what you actually can see from Scripture in the book of Revelation, that the last living disciple of Jesus Christ, what he closes, closes Revelation with, he says, don't add to and don't take away from this book. So I believe that the Apostle John, the last living disciple of Jesus Christ, knew at that point that the canon was closed, but it wasn't official until 367. Now, there were some criteria that these men selected Scripture from. Like what, what is Scripture and what's not Scripture? Well, first off, it had to be written, not by an eyewitness, but by an apostle or somebody that was directly connected to an apostle. Um, it had to be used in circulation by the first century church, and it couldn't contradict other places in Scripture, uh, basically the Old Testament. It couldn't contradict the Old Testament. So there were plenty of other books that were eyewitness accounts and man, Jesus, I personally met him and this is what he told me and they're saying, you know what, that's all well and good and we believe what you're saying, but listen, you weren't a disciple of Christ and you, or you weren't directly connected somehow to a disciple of Christ and so we cannot put what you have to say into the canon of the New Testament because we don't feel that it is God's authoritative word. Jesus selected 12 disciples, one of them committed suicide, made up for math. Matthias, you know, became the, the 12th disciple, but then God called Paul, and Paul was an apostle, so Jesus met, you know, Paul met Jesus, so we feel like he is, uh, he's certainly one of those people that should be included in there, and so basically they threw out everything that didn't meet all three of these criteria. So in other words, uh, a, a, an apostle could have written it and the church couldn't have used it, or the church didn't use it, and so that's what they threw that out. So there were lots of things that were said about Jesus, lots of things that could, could have supported that he was the Son of God, that what he said actually happened, but it didn't meet all three of those criteria. So in other words, they didn't, um, they didn't just pick out all the things that they liked, because there were a lot of things that they liked that didn't meet all three of those criteria. Another thing that Bible critics like to say is that the people that wrote the New Testament didn't really know they were writing the New Testament. So that just shows that, you know, that a men in the back room somewhere just selected what they wanted. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, I want to show you a passage of Scripture, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. This is what the Apostle Peter says. He says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. Who's Paul? The Apostle Paul, who wrote uh, you know, th at least 13 chapters in the New Testament. He says, in verse 16, he says, He writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them uh, of these matters. He says, These letters contain, contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant people and unstable people distort, as they do with other scriptures. To their own destruction. So what he's saying is, is that yes, uh, Paul wrote these letters and that it is scripture. How could they have possibly known that what they were writing was actually scripture? So the, the way that they could know this was the exact same way that prophets and people in the, in the Old Testament knew that what they were writing was scripture. Over and over and over again what you see in the Old Testament when prophets were speaking on behalf of God, they would say, thus saith the Lord. Thus saith 
the Lord. In other words, God has told me that he wants me to speak to you and that he wants to use me as a vessel. That's exactly what the writers of the New Testament knew that they were doing. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul knew he was doing, that God was speaking through him. And Peter considered the things that Paul had written as Scripture. So don't let anybody ever tell you that they didn't know that they were writing Scripture. Most certainly they did. The same way the people in the Old Testament would know is exactly the way that the, the apostles, the same people in the New Testament knew that they were actually writing, writing Scripture. So basically the Bible is God's Word because um, it has, you know, it withstands all these arguments, but also the Bible is God's word because it has the ability to do what no other book has done. And it has, it has done what no other book has done and what no other book will ever do. The Old Testament canon was closed before Jesus Christ was born, which means it was already finished, it was already complete, and it was already being preserved at least, at least 200 years before Jesus was born. And so I want to read a passage of Scripture for you that is absolutely incredible. I ask you guys to turn to Isaiah chapter 52, and I want to look at verses 13 through the end of chapter 53. Listen to this, because this is incredible. He says, It says in uh, Isaiah 52, verses 13 and 14, See, my servant will act wisely. He says, see, see, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who appalled at him, his appearance will be so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. So what is it talking about? It's talking about when Jesus was flogged and he was beaten by the, by the Romans. That he was, he was beaten beyond recognition. He looked like a piece of hamburger meat. You could look at him and you wouldn't even recognize him because he was beat so much. The suffering servant will follow that same thing. Verse 15, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will not see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. So he's saying uh, basically that the, the, the king, that he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And, and other kings will, will pay attention to him. And, and you know what they weren't told, they will see. You know, they, they, they will begin to see. And what they have not heard, they will understand that, that God will begin to reveal those things to them. Uh, verses 50, chapter 53, verses 1 through 1-2. It says, who has believed our message to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and out of the root dry ground. Jesus is going to come to the earth and he would be born and he would grow up. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He won't come as a king. He won't be attractive. He'll look like just like everybody else. And you won't be able to recognize him because of some distinguishing feature like, oh, he's so handsome. And you won't be able to follow him. You won't follow him because he's got so much money or he's got so much power. He's going to come with no beauty or majesty. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one on whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We rejected him. We, he came, and we rejected him. We, we, we told him, that, you know, we listened to him, and we didn't give him any esteem. We did not hold him up. Surely, he took our infirmities, and he carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. The same people that he heals, the same people that he takes the affliction from, the same people that he raises from the dead, 
said. The same people that he, he, he says get up and walk are going to be the very same people that shout crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. He will be pierced for the things that we have done. Like, oh, pierced where? Pierced how? Pierced on a cross. He was crushed for our iniquities for the things that we've done. The punishment that we deserve, he will take that from us. We will get, he will take all of our punishment and we will get all of his righteousness by his wounds. We are made right with God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquities of, of us all. So it is a person. And on that person, and he will be, like we like sheep have gone astray, and he will be that atoning sacrifice for us. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. As he he is being accused and told all kinds of things and ugly things are, are said about him. He will keep his mouth shut and he will be like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. A lamb, that's pretty significant because a lamb is what's used in sacrifices for sin. And just as a sheep is silent before his shears is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. So just basically, you know, he wasn't worried. As a sheep goes before its shears, he's like, I'm, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to be fine. I won't be destroyed. Just like he, he went before his accusers, he says to himself, Everything's going to be fine, and I don't have any reason to open my mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was killed. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. He was hung among thieves. And with the rich in his death, he was put into a rich man's tomb. Though he had not done any violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, he was a sinless creature. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. The God did this, and he caused him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after the suffering of his soul, after all this is over with, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. He will raise from the dead. That which was dead will no longer be dead. He will be alive. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Many will come to call him Lord, and many will be saved, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils of the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. He gave his life so that we could be saved, and was numbered with the transgressors. He did not have to associate with us, but he came and justified us by being recognized as like us, for he bore the sins of many, many cry out to Jesus, and are saved, and made intercession for the transgressors. He made us right with God. Now, the coolest part about this, now listen to this, the coolest part about this passage is that it was written 700 years and the canon was closed. It was being preserved 700 years before Jesus was born. No other book, no other passage, no other piece of literature has the ability to do what God's Word, the Holy Bible, has done.
Not only has it withstood the test of time, not only has it withstood constant criticism because people don't like what it says, it has the ability to say this is what's going to happen and that's exactly what happens no matter how hard you fight it. Nobody, nothing can compare to God's Word because Jesus is God's Word. Now I want to end with a, a very uh, a very important thing that I think I think every single Christian needs to address. You can have complete certainty that what you hold in your hand, that what you study throughout the week, that it is God's authoritative book. You don't ever have to doubt that it is 100% accurate and that it is 100% authoritative. God has given us every single thing that we need to know that it is his word. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you believe it's 100% true and that you believe it's 100% authoritative if you don't actually do what it says. James chapter 1 verse 22 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. We must be followers of the word, not just believers in the word. We must be followers of the word with full assurance knowing that it is written for us to follow Christ. Now, I know you're not going to remember everything that I said today because it was a lot, so I'm going to throw this up online and you can refer back to it. I'm not going to remember everything that I said. I'm leaving it online. You can go listen to it on the podcast anytime you want to. Basically, the reason I'm doing this is so that you can know with 100% certainty that the, God's, the Bible is God's Word and it is 100% true. Um, but my prayer for you is not only that you know what the Bible is and who wrote it and why it's 100% true. My, my prayer for you is that you truly develop a hunger for studying God's Word, knowing what it says, because it is God's message to you. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you are who the Bible is for. It's not to make people look stupid. It is to make you understand that it is all about Jesus and you need to surrender your life to Him. This book is for you. It is God's letter to you. I'm just going to leave you with one final thought. People say, if man wrote the Bible, how can we trust that it is the inspired Word of God? Well, because Jesus is the Word. And just like Jesus was fully man and fully God, the Bible is fully written by man and fully written by God. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that the Lord blessed you through this message and that He spoke to you and that you have a clear direction for your life. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. And if you have any questions or comments about today's message, please feel free to email us at fbcrungi at gmail.com. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.